you are tuned in to How To OT. Today we are releasing two episodes featuring evidence-based approaches to working with clients who have dementia. This is part one of our dual release in which we interview Dr. Laura Gitlin. As always, I'm your host, Matt Brandenburg. Let's get to the interview. I am joined today by Dr. Gitlin, um, who is currently the Dean of the College of Nursing and Health Professions at Drexel University and is a PhD and an applied research sociologist. Thank you so much for joining Dr. Gitlin. It's my honor. Thank you. Of course, of course. Um, So a little background, me and Dr. Gitlin were connected through Carrie Birch, who is an occupational therapist at Memory Care Home Solutions here in St. Louis. And she shared with me that you, Dr. Gitlin, have expertise in intervention for people with dementia and Alzheimer's. And you're recognized for research on community-based interventions specifically uh, that improve quality of life for persons with dementia and their caregivers, enhance daily function of older adults with disability, and address mental health disparities. And kind of to start things off, I wanted to ask you what led you to research and develop approaches specific to this population? Yes, well, thank you for the opportunity to talk about this work because as the population ages, we do have a crisis in dementia care and dementia is a disease of a family and most people with the diagnosis of dementia at some point in their life will need help from someone, whether it be a family member, a neighbor, a volunteer, uh, but they'll, they'll need help as the disease progresses. Uh, so this is a very important topic and I thank you for uh, shining some light to it. Why people become interested in things is always an important question. And in this case, for me, I became interested in dementia, but circuitously because I grew up in a family that was experienced very significant chronic diseases and illnesses. And I had a sibling who was in and out of hospitals and lived in hospitals for much of his life. And so I was very much brought up within the world of illness. And what uh, was uh, interesting to me about this was two things. One, what is normal? Because I, I personally and my, my sibling did not have a normal, a so-called normal in quotes, uh, childhood mm-hmm. or young adulthood. And also how do people, individuals and families adapt to what is their normal, which is often abnormal from, you know, development books and so forth and so on. So I came to to dementia via this kind of essential question. And because dementia is one of the most feared conditions of our time and exacts an incredible toll on the individual and the family member, and over many, many years, it became of great interest to me to see how do people adapt to this diagnosis? What personal and environmental resources do they bring to bear? How do families rally? 
what kinds of roles and responsibilities do people have? And in general, the bigger question, I guess, is how can we make life better for people? So that's how I came to dementia. I, I can imagine that wasn't an easy experience for you and your family growing up, but I definitely want to take this chance to thank you for using your lived experience um, and the lessons you've learned to give back and help others by doing this research. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Of course. So this podcast is uh, geared towards occupational therapy practitioners, but we hope our listening expands into other professions as well. I, I wanted to ask you again, kind of what led you to collaborate with occupational therapy researchers and practitioners in um, this dementia research you've done? Sure. So in the framework, I was brought up uh, within a certain framework from social psychology, and I was very uh, influenced by a very famous, brilliant social psychologist named Kurt Lewin, who worked at the university, who was uh, a scholar at the University of Chicago way back, I guess, 1930s, 1940s. And his entire uh, approach was to understand people in their, their life space. And he saw behavior as a function of the interaction of a person that brings cognitive, physical, emotional, right, uh, intrinsic um, factors and how those factors interact with a physical and social environment, whether that be the immediate environment, plus the community, plus um, our health systems, plus policy, et cetera. So I was schooled in and worked out of at a very uh, young intellectual age, I should say, I mean, a, a young age in terms of my intellectual development uh, from this person environment fit paradigm. And I was very fortunate, and it was a serendipitous uh, opportunity I had that when I got my PhD, I worked at the, at the time, it was called the Philadelphia Geriatric uh, Center, uh, and it was led by another brilliant environmental psychologist, uh, M. Pal Lawton. And he was the father, if you will, of many of the tools that occupational therapists actually use and other health professionals in terms of helping to measure uh, uh, activities of daily living and instrumental activities of daily living. But he also operated and, and coined the term and developed a framework called environmental competence press, where he saw changes in people's competencies in their interaction in their environment uh, in terms of uh, the ability to uh, cope and to uh, thrive. Uh, and with decreased competencies, then the press of the environment increases and potentially impacts the person negatively and then the other way around. And so I've always operated out of those frameworks. And when you look at chronic disease and dementia and family systems, uh, these are the factors you have to consider. Uh, that it, that person uh, and persons and their environment and their interaction and uh, you know that that uh, right fit, if you will. Uh, and as I began to think through what would help older adults and people living with dementia, in particular, and their family members, 
um, address some of the common clinical features of the chronic disease, whether that be dementia or diabetes or heart disease or cancer or the combination, because it's always a combination typically, uh, what better profession than occupational therapy, who uh, this is a profession totally schooled in, right? And trained in and have competencies in and scope of practice is in understanding the person in their living environment. So it was a very, very natural fit. Uh, and when I was at the Philadelphia Geriatric Center, a colleague of mine said that uh, some colleagues of his who were occupational therapists were looking for a research coordinator. And he thought that uh, my uh, basic uh, paradigm, if you will, of research and philosophy uh, coincided with and fit with occupational therapists. And then also being a sociologist, you know, I'm kind of steeped in uh, the construct of roles and habit and um, um, occupation, etc., and in ways that were very much aligned with occupational therapy. And when he told me of this position, I honestly had no idea initially what occupational therapists do and who they are. And the first book that I looked at when I looked up OT was Ken Ottenbacher, who's a researcher at Gainesville uh, University in Texas. And he wrote this amazing book, uh, which name I'm sorry, I'm forgetting right now, but he was discussing this tension between single subject designs and randomized trials and so forth. And he was really addressing, which are today key issues in research and how do we understand people's lives. And I said, any profession that is on the forefront thinking about these things conceptually and operationally, and then also engaging in clinical practice that uses and tries to operationalize these principles of environment and person and their interaction is a place that I want to be. And that was how I went to an interview and uh, with, at the time, the chair of the occupational therapy department at Thomas Jefferson University. And uh, I jumped at the opportunity that was offered to be a research coordinator uh, for the department and uh, was really thrilled to be collaborating with occupational therapists who were in and out of people's homes and had the front row seat, if you will, on the ground. Uh, intelligence to help think through these very complex uh, issues and uh, I remain to this day indebted to and also uh, have fantastic collaborations with uh, the, the profession of occupational therapy. Wow well thank you so much for sharing that. Um, as a <laughs> As an occupational therapy student, it just fills me with excitement um, for our whole profession and to be starting my kind of career in this profession um, that does emphasize the interaction between the environment and the person and really value that. Also, thank you for sharing kind of your the frameworks and theories that, that back some of your research and, and some of what you've done in, in looking at how to improve the outcomes of people with dementia. And I kind of wanted now to shift focus to more of those interventions for people who have dementia. 
And I think there's three specifically uh, that you've been uh, a part of. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but they're the care of people with dementia and their environments, also known as COPE, Skills to Care, and New Ways for Better Days, which is also known as TAP or TAP. Is that correct? You got it. Good for you. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Um, so I'd love to ask you more details about um, each of these and have a discussion about how and why they're effective treatments and also how and kind of get the word out and maybe make them more accessible to uh, a greater number of occupational therapy practitioners. They definitely share things in common and uh, however they do have different um, protocols and slightly different outcomes. But I, I want to say that in dementia care, in other countries, Occupational therapists are not only part of the clinical team, but often lead the clinical team. In our country, occupational therapists are, their scope of practice of occupational therapy is often narrowly confined, not that to, I was gonna say, let me finish my thought, I'm sorry, narrowly confined to uh, a rehabilitative improvement framework. And not that that's bad, that's a good thing. At the same time, the occupational therapists don't always have in our country and in our healthcare system an ability to work at their fullest scope of practice. And I think this is an important point because nowhere outside of the United States do I have to even say what the role is of occupational therapy in dementia care. Because again, a neurologist is partnering with an occupational therapist and they're equal members at the table in discussing a dementia care case. So uh, I just think that should give us some pause here. And <clears throat> also it's been my mission to change dementia care in the United States. And so having occupational therapy lead that effort is very critical because in dementia, we do not have a cure and we will not for quite a while. And even if we have medications that slow disease progression, that's slowing the progression of the disease, that still means that people's interactions within their environment are altered and going to be altered as a, the disease progresses, if you will. It's a brain disease, it's, it does progress and it's terminal. So, the whole point is of uh, my research with my OT and other colleagues has been how can we make life better wherever a person is at in the disease trajectory. So I'll just start with the Tailored Activity Program or TAP uh, that very much focuses on who the person with dementia is and it involves an assessment of the person's abilities and their interests, as well as a look at their physical environment that they're situated in, as well as who their care partners are. And from that, the occupational therapist designs three activities that reflect the person's interests 
uh, and is tailored to their abilities. So if a person is a, or was a, a homemaker, for example, and use and or used to uh, sew, and they're at the moderate to a moderate severe stage of the disease, they still may have an interest in and recognize objects of their occupation, their previous occupation. And so sewing or threading yarn through um, a large cardboard cutout of some sort may be something that they really enjoy, or as a homemaker, they may enjoy and want to participate in folding laundry and so forth. And so as an occupational therapist, I think you can see where I'm going, that for any one activity that is of interest, you can upgrade or downgrade it based on the person's um, abilities. So based on designing these activities, then a care partner is instructed and informed how to uh, engage the person in that activity. And that care partner could be a health provider in a hospital setting. It could be a, a nurse assistant in, uh, the, in, in assisted living. It could be uh, the caregiver at home. And more recently now we're testing this with volunteers who go to a person's home and volunteers may not know what the person can do or what kind of cueing they may need to engage in the activity or that they can't really initiate. But if the activity is set up in such a way and in their visual field that they're able to participate with very minimal guidance or maybe they need more guidance. So all of those kinds of elements, as you can see, are uh, what occupational therapists can identify through their uh, through different assessment approaches and can inform a care partner in terms of the best way of setting up an activity. So this is a very important intervention because any family member or health provider can go online and download 101 activities from the Alzheimer's Association. And that may be very helpful to trigger some ideas it doesn't help in terms of how do you enhance the ability of a person to engage in that activity. And that's why we need a protocol and an approach such as TAP. So if you've noticed and listened to me, I am not teaching anybody occupational therapy, right? I'm not teaching occupational therapists how to do occupational therapy. Occupational therapists, and as a student, you're learning how to identify activities, how to grade activities, how to understand their components, how to use all different kinds of cueing. What we've done in TAP is standardize the approach and put it into a protocol that we've tested and we have found very important outcomes that we can reduce agitation and behavioral symptoms. We can reduce functional dependence or remove excess disability, I would say, in the person living with dementia. We can improve uh, a caregiver's sense of well-being and confidence. And in some countries, they're finding a reduction in burden and depression. Uh, and we have found in some studies also a, an increase in time available to the caregiver, uh, family member, uh, by who is using the activities on a consistent basis. So that's that's TAP. Thank you for, for sharing 
the protocol and approach and some of those specifics and really those outcomes speak for themselves. Um, it seems like there's so much associated uh, with this program to improve the health outcomes of clients and also caregivers. And those outcomes you found in, in randomized trials um, and that are have been repeated. So it's it's a high level of evidence and support of, of this standardized approach. I, I just wanted to add. That's right. And thank you. That's a great point. And it's now being used in various countries or being adapted and then used in various countries. And so the evidence, you know, continues to grow and we're pretty clear about what can be adapted and what can't. So there's some general principles that are called immutable principles, meaning they can't be changed. In other words, you have to assess what a person can do, not just what they can't do. You have to assess what the interests are. The activities that are designed have to fit interests and cultural appropriateness. Uh, and so uh, also uh, TAP introduces and informs the care partner of the activities and the best ways of setting the activities up through a very interactive approach, a do approach. So they, the care partner is engaged with the OT in introducing the activity to the person with dementia and learns through doing what works and what doesn't work. So it's a highly interactive process. Uh, and I'll just say very quickly, if you want me to just say, do you want me to say a little bit about COPE and Skills to Care? Yes, maybe before we move on to COPE, um, I was going to ask where a therapist could find more information on TAP or how they could begin using um, that standardized protocol in their practice. Yes, yeah, so TAP, that's a great question. And uh, TAP, what we did with TAP is we developed an online program and that is followed up by a two-hour virtual training where we help people understand how to implement the program in their setting. And then we provide some coaching if that's needed or consultation about uh, three sessions after that. And uh, this is probably more, you'll tell me if this is too much detail, but this was situated at Hopkins, but I have recently moved to Drexel and we have uh, moved the online training program from Hopkins to Drexel and the end of October, it will be available and go live. So maybe I can follow up with you if that's okay and let you know the website and uh, how, uh, who to contact because the pricing for the license to be trained and use will vary uh, by the number of people in one setting that are going to be trained, or we train individuals uh, as well. So I can send you that information. Absolutely. That. <laughs> yeah, that would be okay. great. And then I can make that information available to our listeners, um, just even in the description of this episode when it's published. But yeah, let's, uh, let's go ahead and talk about the care of persons with dementia and their environments or the COPE program now. Okay, so COPE involves up to 13 sessions over a four or six month period. It's kind of flexible that way. And it, it involves a nurse and an occupational therapist. And COPE uses, so let's start, let's talk specifically about the occupational therapist. So the occupational therapist uses the same assessment that we developed in TAP. 
And that is to understand the interests and abilities and also challenges of the person living with dementia, understand their safety in their home environment and ways that the environment supports or not their daily function. But it takes the TAP assessment one step further and includes a lengthy section of just interviewing the family caregiver to understand what they see as most challenging in caring for their relative living with dementia. This intervention is very much geared towards a person, a family who's living with someone with dementia at the mild, moderate, 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 severe stage or severe stage. So TAP can be used at early to severe, but COPE is very much geared towards helping families tackle some of the most challenging care uh, issues they may confront on a daily basis. How to help the person get in and out of the shower, how to manage uh, eating, uh, how to manage possibly disruptive sleep, how to take care of themselves as a caregiver, how to coordinate care, how to talk about the disease with other family members or providers. And the occupational therapist's involvement with the family unfolds for most of the sessions of the 13 sessions, about 10 sessions. Some families need all 10 and some families don't. But uh, most families will stay and you know, benefit from all 10. And from identifying the areas that the family member themselves want to work on, the occupational therapist provides uh, concrete knowledge and skills to and strategies, strategies for the specific problem area. And those strategies are informed by the assessment of the person living with dementia. So most family caregivers, for example, overestimate the ability of a person living with dementia. They will use complex communications. The environment may be very cluttered. And these are aspects that become very confusing to the person living with dementia. If you think back to that person environment competence framework of Pal Lawton and others that uh, I know is used in occupational therapy, uh, you can begin to see what I mean. And so the occupational therapist is really providing strategies to get the right fit, if you will, of the caregiver and the person living with dementia and to provide very concrete strategies, whether that is environmental changes, communication changes, simplifying the uh, particular tasks and activities of the day and so forth. So now the nurse visits after the first visit of the occupational therapist and the nurse provides education to the family caregiver and meets with the family caregiver to talk about all the different kinds of issues in managing the care of someone who's aging. So for example, families rarely know about and learn about proper hydration. And when you have caring for your spouse or your mother or your sibling, 
who has communication difficulties, how do you know if that person's getting proper hydration and nutrition, for example? How do you know if the person has difficulty understanding pain that they're in pain or they're not in pain? So the nurse reviews different common issues that may be contributing to poor quality of life of the person with dementia and also emphasizes to the caregiver the importance of them taking care of themselves and comes up with strategies with them that the OT also can reinforce as to how to get respite and take care of themselves. And then the nurse does take blood and urine from the person living with dementia as samples to rule out underlying infections and medical conditions that may be contributing to poor well-being and in the home. And from our first trial, and now we have a second trial in Connecticut, and the second trial, the data has not been published yet, but we found the same thing. We found close to 40% of people that were tested in COPE had an underlying medical condition that needed to be treated. And that's very important finding uh, because these are people living with all different kinds of medical conditions that are not being adequately treated that may be interfering with function, quality of life, and contribute to behavioral symptoms. So COPE is at home. Just as TAP is at home, but TAP also has been tested in a variety of conditions, uh, hospital, adult day, assisted living. COPE is now being tested in the Medicaid waiver condition, in community-based programs that, such as Memory Care Home Solutions is testing. It's being rolled out widely in Australia, and it's being tested in a couple of other places, in Texas, and oh, and we're about to launch cope within uh, Trinity Health Systems PACE programs, a program for all-inclusive care for elders. So cope is moving along. You can see that it's more expansive than TAP. As part of cope, we use a similar assessment of the person with dementia, and we also provide activity as a way to address various kinds of behavioral symptoms. So someone in cope could get a part of TAP. Uh, but if someone just wants to deal with a behavioral issue, then they get TAP alone. So those are how the two kind of link. And again, they're both based on general principles of very, being very client-centered, family-centered, uh, strength-based, culturally relevant uh, strategies, uh, tailoring to the preferences, to the challenges, to what fits and works for families. So they all share, all three of them, as a matter of fact, share that general principle. Thank you so much. I think those principles are so important to treating all patients, no matter the setting or um, the population uh, or whatever difficulties yeah. they may be having. Um, but it's very good to hear exactly how they relate to um, these three intervention tools. And maybe one question I wanted to ask you, if you could go into a little bit more depth on, is why would you say it's so important to include the caregivers um, so intensely in, in treating someone with dementia? Yeah, so good question. And our approach is dyadic, and many of the strategies that we 
are introducing are dependent on somebody who is going to introduce them into the household or into the residence. Uh, so we are, our approaches are dependent on having somebody uh, do that. So to change their behavior, change their communication patterns, change the environment. So to that end, understanding where the caregiver is at, understanding uh, what if, are they employed and they can't use activity because they're too busy. Do they have other people in the home that they're caring for? Maybe a, a children in the home or maybe another parent with dementia. I mean, what, what's the environment like for the caregiver is really critical for us to derive the right strategies to support both the person and the uh, person living with dementia and the caregiver. So in order to impact the person living with dementia, we are mostly acting through the caregiver. Now TAP, as I said, we're testing that with volunteers and it could, or it could be a re recreational therapist or it could be an adult day service staff person. So, there's others who are helping to set up the activity, for example. Uh, and so that's why TAP is much more focused on the person living with dementia. Although when we do involve a family member as a care partner, we find benefits to them. Does, does that make sense to you? Did that answer your question? Yes, it absolutely did. Yeah, thank you for kind of reiterating why it's so important to include the caregiver. And then also including the caregiver in these programs improves their personal well-being and confidence in, in caring for whoever it may be who has dementia as well. Yeah, like the caregiver sometimes is referred to as the hidden patient and uh, their work and effort is not well recognized. And also we're talking about care family members who are providing, you know, many, many hours of care a day. You know, that's why it's called the 36 hour day, uh, the, the very famous book by Mason Ravens on the experience of dementia. And so families are in the forefront of knowing what's going to work and what's not going to work. So really developing a collaborative approach with the family caregiver is critical for the success of the programs that we've developed. Absolutely. Thank you for, for explaining that in, in more detail. And I guess, where, where can practitioners find a COPE or uh, receive training and access to COPE? Yeah, so COPE is not, we don't yet have a developed online program. And online training is really critical for scalability. But in the short run, both my colleague, Dr. Catherine Pearsall, who's the chair of the Department of Occupational Therapy at Thomas Jefferson University, and myself, we do provide uh, uh, training. So that would be an email to me to say uh, training. And there is a fee, of course, for our time and for all the manuals. And we have successfully trained people, three different groups, uh, as a matter of fact, Memory Care Home Solutions, Texas and Australians via Zoom. So we feel pretty confident about our uh, Approach to training via that mechanism. But I'm happy to announce that we do have a grant from the National Institute on Aging to create an online program for COPE. And we are in the middle of developing that program. 
and it will not be ready for easily another year and we'll be testing it in the Trinity Health System, but at least it's, it's forthcoming. That's great. That's, uh, I'm sure all of our listeners will be looking forward to, to that program when it is um, fully developed and tested. I wanted to ask, you mentioned that uh, these programs have been successfully implemented in a variety of places and even internationally. Um, I wanted to ask if you could share with us maybe a clinical example of uh, something you've seen when someone implemented these programs and saw very positive outcomes. There's a lot of examples. Uh, And I'm going to give you one from an occupational therapist who is in uh, Italy. And he was trained in the tailored activity program. And he implemented it in the um, nursing home. It was a special care unit for people living with dementia. And he sent me a video clip. So I'm going to relay the video clip. And so he shared a case of an older woman with dementia, moderate stage, I'd say. And she was admitted by her two sons who just were could not handle her agitation and aggression. And when she was admitted to the unit, the staff were very scared of her. And she used to, um, she became very belligerent and angry and started to make a mess of things. And she would try to take the tablecloth and roll it and fold it while people were sitting there. And the staff were scared of her, didn't know what to do. And then they would move her away from the table, which, you know, escalated the issues. And so they called uh, this occupational therapist in and said, you know, what should we do? And so he observed several things. First, he observed that the dialect of this woman was very different than the dialect of the staff. She came from a rural area, remote, and she had different ways of phrasing things than the staff. And the staff spoke loudly, harshly, and quickly, and again in a different dialect. So slightly different dialect. So she had trouble understanding. Secondly, she was definitely very agitated. She was a little paranoid. uh, And they wanted to give her medications. uh, And he felt that there was another way. And so in talking to the sons, he discovered what her interests were. And she used to fold laundry and do laundry and fold clothing and iron for her community. So not only for her own household, but neighbors would drop things off in her home. So this, these were objects of familiarity with her, and it was what she used to do. So what he did is he got a laundry basket, a plastic laundry basket, and he took uh, hospital gowns and towels and all sorts of things and put it in the laundry basket and asked this woman if she could help the staff. They really needed help. They were overwhelmed. And she could she help them by folding the clothing? That combined with clearing a space that was not cluttered that she could work on for folding the clothing, training, instructing the staff how to communicate with her, how to speak calmly, how to redirect her, and how to speak slowly, 
changed the situation uh, day and night. So she did not need medications. And what happened is this laundry basket became her pill. So she basically became pretty agitated in the evening, in between like either waiting for dinner or right after dinner when there's really not too much to do. Uh, and so all the staff were instructed to provide her with the new laundry, you know, set of clothing and to ask for her help. And uh, it was so successful that the geriatrician told his name was Ale, his name is Alessandro, that he wanted every resident to be assessed using the TAP approach. And in one facility, they reduced their antipsychotic use by 30,000 euros within, uh, well, don't quote me on this, it was either a month or a couple months, which is a huge, you know, a huge amount, of course, because everybody was put on a TAP program. So that's what comes immediately to mind. Uh, there's tons of other cases where families uh, in COPE, for example, say, uh, what did they learn? Well, they learned that uh, it's so their mother doesn't have to do things the right way as long as she's engaged. You know, a typical statement by a daughter is, I was brought up to fold the laundry correctly or to put the dishes away correctly or to do things correctly. But as long as my mother is participating and is engaged and has a sense of meaning, that's what's important, of course, as long as she's safe. So, uh, you know, I have lots of cases that illustrate that. Thank you so much for sharing those cases in particular. Uh, it, it really helps hit home the fact that following these protocols in a standardized way and taking time to conduct a good assessment or occupational interview to find interests, tailoring those interests to the person and establishing the support they need can really have such a huge impact on someone's health and well-being. Absolutely. And I really like the way that you summarized that. And assessment is really key. And it's not about what the person can't do because everybody knows what the person can't do. And that's all the person themselves have been told. Oh, well, your memory is failing or no, you know, your attend, your ability to attend is in, only in the 2% range, you know, and, and that's what the family knows, but they don't know that in fact, this person can attend to an activity for 20 minutes and in fact derive tremendous pleasure that has positive outcomes for the rest of the day because they are valued and they are reconnected to their environment and to roles that they used to hold as important to them and, part, and it's part of their identity. So both TAP and COPE are really about uh, preserving identity and personhood, a sense of personhood and meaning and role resumption. Preserving identity and personhood. I love that. Awesome. Well, Dr. Gitlin, thank you so much. We're, we're kind of running out of time here. Before we wrap things up, though, I wanted to ask you if there's any other resources that you'd like to recommend to our listeners or places they can go to find your research or, or programming. Well, I would say a couple of things. Uh, first, I have a new co-authored book with Dr. Nancy Hodgson called Better Living with dementia implications for individuals, families, society, and community, or the other way around, community, society. Uh, and in there, we summarize what we can do now to make life better for families, 
and the best evidence uh, along the way. And the book is really for anybody. It's for professionals, it's for researchers, it's for families, because it has a little something for everybody, if you will, and we consider it basic knowledge that everybody should have, but it takes it from the point of view that there's always something that can be done to uh, enhance everyday living. Uh, and then the other book I'd like to recommend is, it's by myself and uh, Dr. Pearsall, and it's a caregiver guide to dementia, and it's about uh, different strategies that we have learned from Skills to Care, COPE, TAP, and they're summarized in the form of checklists. And uh, this, they're both available on, uh, on Amazon. And the Washington Post summarized our caregiver guidebook simply saying, sometimes you just need a checklist. And our families really love this book. And we hand it out as part of all of our programs because it reinforces what uh, is being done in the home and the kinds of strategies we're introducing. And then lastly, I would refer people to a massive open online course called Living with Dementia. And again, it's similar, Living with Dementia, Implications for Individuals, Families, Communities, Society. And it's through Coursera. And if you just look up Living with Dementia, Coursera, it's free. There are, this was designed by myself and Nancy Hodgson. There are 16 videos each, I'd say under an hour. You can sign up for free and go through the entire program and get a certificate of completion from Hopkins. Or you can just sign up and look at what you want and, you know, uh, dally, <laughs> you know, take a look at some videos and stop them or start them. And we have had over 100,000 people worldwide from over 169 countries uh, participate. And we still get really great feedback because again, it provides a different orientation. It's not just about the brain, it's about the brain in the person, the person in the home, the home in a community, and all of these factors interact to create a quality of life or not. So uh, those, are the, those are some resources I would recommend. Thank you so much. Those sound like awesome resources for our listeners. And we'll try and uh, put links to those into the episode description when, when we go live here as well. Perfect. Great. Let's see. I, I always love to end the show with one final question. I like to call it the golden nugget segment. Um, <laughs> and, and I'll ask you this question. If you could tell occupational therapy practitioners to do one thing, what would it be? With regard to dementia or in general? Both. <laughs> <laughs> then I get two things. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Uh, well, for I guess I would say have confidence in your theories and measures and practice. And I will say specifically, because this is my area, uh, oh, occupational therapy is the most critical profession in aging well. And so I would say have confidence in your profession and advocate for your full scope of work 
uh, because occupational therapists need to be at the table in healthcare and centered, a centerpiece of the team. And I guess I would say in dementia care in particular, uh, the role of occupational therapists is really critical. And I would want occupational therapists to embrace that and provide the leadership needed to change dementia care. That's a perfect way to sum it up, I think. Thank you for tuning in to part one of our two-episode release highlighting evidence-based interventions for OT practitioners working with clients who have dementia. Part two will feature an interview from Dr. Catherine Pearsall. I hope you guys are learning and enjoying these interviews as much as I am. And I just want to remind everybody, if you have two minutes, please take our post-listener survey, which you can find through a link in the episode description and on the homepage of the podcast, which just features 10 questions asking about how effective this podcast is in sharing pertinent information that you can apply to your practice. Thank you so much. So thankful for everything Rejuvenating my inner light as I work hard for all I need Open arms, embracing life and all the way you gave me I work, it pays off, I'm happy now, it's paying me Close my eyes sometimes and feel as if I blow away I love the life, I live and enjoy the ride along the way I'll make a living out of living, yeah that's what I say I got one life to live and I would live in no other way Every single day, cause I love my occupation. Hey, 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 I'm on vacation. Every single day, every, every single day. Hey, I'm on vacation. Every single day, cause I love my occupation. Hey, 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 I'm on vacation. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it.